We are in a teaching series called Our Identity in Christ. If you have a worship folder, it would be really handy for you to catch up just a little bit on what we've been talking about, and today actually is the last message in this series, the very, very last one. And hopefully it's going to begin a a whole new outbreak of understanding and and just who we are in Jesus Christ. Satan's big lie is that our performance, that our self-worth equals our performance plus other people's opinions. Self-worth is our performance plus other people's opinions. Now, you know, I, I can't believe it. I just saw Dan Carlton and Karina. Welcome. And here we have little uh, Sophia Grace. She's just waking up. She's just waking up. It, it, that means I want to make her cry. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. I, I remember you at the wedding. Carlos? Yes, and Juanita. Karina, congratulations on outstanding achievement. You, you made it in the bulletin. Listen, Dan is shameless with his pride over this baby. I, I can't believe him. So Dan and Karina Carlton have little Sophia. When are we going to dedicate this baby to the Lord? Soon. Okay. All right. Good. We'll, we'll, we'll take care of that. I mean, I know you're an old Presbyterian, so you believe in that kind of stuff. Good. Okay. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So we, we, we have two babies that have been born, and, and you can see this actually on your, your announcements back here. Uh, Tamara and Archie Hanrado, they're not here today, but they're going to be here on August the 12th, and they're going to dedicate, Reese is what they call him, Reese. They're going to dedicate their little boy. So we have a little girl and a little boy who have been born and, uh, in, in, our, in our young little new church here. And so that's kind of good. Look, some of you may not... Where's, where's William? Sherry took him in the nursery. And Madeline's back there too. Okay. I have my grandchildren here today. This morning, they went out snail hunting. <laughs> Around our house, there are so many snails. They caught 37 snails. They brought those snails into our bedroom. Look, ah, you know, and so they were, I was trying my best, you know, to be a good granddad and, and rejoice. And, and so they went out and, huh? I do, I do, I do. And escargot, that's kind of, I get, can we cook these things? And people actually eat these things? So anyway, so we've had a lot of fun this morning at our house so far, so Anyway, uh, when we have a baptism today, we want to be sure and go out and get Madeline and William so they can see uh, 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 the baptism of Abby and Beckham today. They're going to be baptized at the end of the service. Okay, uh, our identity in Christ, we can either listen to the, de- the devil's lies, and his lies are very clear, and it's this. Your self-worth equals your performance plus other people's opinions. So it's how well you perform and what other people think about you that give you your sense of self-worth. And that's loaded with lies. It's the lie of the enemy. And we've taken these one at a time, one lie at a time. The first one was the performance trap lie. 
I must perform well in order to feel good about myself. Now, we countered that lie because you get in that performance trap and you've You'll be perfectionist. You've got to achieve. You've got to be successful. You have something to prove. You have something to show. And you've just got to measure up. And you've got to compete and succeed. And and somehow you will show the world that you're okay by your performance. And you'll feel good about yourself because you're succeeding. You're performing well. That's a trap. It's a trap because you'll never be squeaky clean. You'll never, be a, you'll never bat a thousand. You cannot uh, just live a life of perfection, of obs- obsessive always having to do more, having to succeed, having to do the very next thing that would make, in your mind, you a successful person. Now, the truth is this. The four truths that we're hanging our identity in Christ on are doctrines of the atonement. They are the great doctrines of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that first doctrine, it's a legal term. It's called justification. It comes right out of the courtroom. Justification. It's a legal term whereby at the cross, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, God, like a judge, brings the gavel down and declares, not guilty, you're fully forgiven, and I declare you righteous. So it is a legal declaration that you are fully forgiven and you are declared righteous. And so that's important. But then the next trap that we can fall into is we'll become an approval addict. And that lie is this. I must have the approval of others to feel good about myself. So it's very important what you think about me because I'm performing for you and get your acceptance. And if you feel good about me and if you're applauding me and giving me those accolades, I will feel good about myself. Now that approval addict has such a fear of rejection wants to please people so much, you're easily manipulated and become angry and withdrawn and all of those things. Now, the truth from the cross is the truth of reconciliation. And that is, in Christ, I am totally accepted. Romans 15, 7 says, as you've therefore, as you have received, as as." Christ has received, as God has received you, so you receive one another. God receives us in Christ. Reconciliation is that second term. It's not a legal term. It is a relational term. Justification legally declares you righteous. Reconciliation is relationship, and it brings you into fellowship with God himself. You are reconciled. You are brought in and made one with God the Father through Jesus Christ your Lord. And so it takes both justification and reconciliation. They're two sides of the same coin, and that's what the cross teaches us. Last week we looked at that third great word, and it's propitiation. Now, if justification comes from the court legal term, and reconciliation comes from the family, a relational term, then propitiation comes from those pagan shrines in Paul's days, and it had to do with 
an angry deity, a wrathful deity who has been appeased and his wrath has been appeased. And that propitiation is exactly what Christ did. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of anger. God has a holy wrath, a holy anger. But all of it, all of it, all of it was poured out upon Jesus, his son. That's propitiation. And so, you don't have to live as a blamer. You don't have to live in the blame game, always blaming God or blaming someone else, which the lie basically says, those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. We live with a fear of being punished, that God's angry and mad at us and can't wait to do us in. And every time we do something wrong, we, we wait God's wrath and God's judgment. The cross tells us that God has already judged sin. He's already poured out his wrath upon sin through Jesus Christ. There's no more judgment. Now, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. He chastens every son, every child that he receives. Discipline is different from punishment. Your sin has already been punished. You do not have to fear punishment, and you do not have to punish others through blaming them and through bitterness and through words of judgment and through revenge. Propitiation teaches us I am deeply, everlastingly, unconditionally loved by the Father. That's what the cross is about. That song, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. So we have three great words. We have justification, God declares us righteous and declares us fully forgiven. We have reconciliation where God establishes an intimate relationship with us through Jesus Christ. And we have propitiation where all of God's wrath has been poured out upon his son and there's none left. Now you reject the son and you'll incur his eternal wrath. I believe that. I believe there is a hell. I believe there is a place of final judgment. And if we do not trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our lives, we will spend an eternity separated from God and then we'll taste and know the wrath of God that he never intended us to experience. This is why Jesus came. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world. I came into the world that the world might be saved. And so God is longing to open up and pour out his grace upon us. Now, today we're going to look at the fourth lie, and it's the lie of shame. In many ways, it comes from these first three lies, but it's, this is one, a lie the enemy uses parents, especially your family of origin, to put into you. And basically, this lie of shame is, I am what I am, I cannot change, I'm hopeless. It's basically an attitude of hopelessness whereby we accept as unchangeable something that is contrary to the will of God. Well, that's the way I am. I'll always be that way, or that's just the way she is. She will always be that way. She will never change. He will never change. 
We get shamed when we're children. A, a two-year-old, a three-year-old is walking behind a grown-up uh, mama or daddy. And, 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 and the mama is rushing or the dad is rushing, turns around to the three-year-old. Can't you keep up with me? Come on, slowpoke. What's the matter with you? Hurry up, a three-year-old. But we shame them just simply because they're only three-year-old. You spill milk as a three-year-old. Why have you done this? What's wrong with you? You're such a messy person. You... And so we get shamed. Rather than a person taking the time and stopping and saying, you know, I, I remember how it is to be three years old. You've got short legs and, and, and daddy's going to walk slower. And come on, you're just doing such a good job. You're a good little walker you are. And, you, and that's actually why God gives grandparents. Grandparents are really good at this. Really good at this. I have never seen anyone snail hunt the way you guys hunt for snails. 37 snails. That's got to be a world record. I've never, you know, we make a mountain out of every little molehill, but it's good mountains to make. The milk spills, and dad, instead of losing his temper and losing his cool and say, what are you doing spilling that milk all over the table, says, no problem. It's my fault anyway. I, I shouldn't have poured that glass so full. I should have put it in a little cup that, that's more like you. That's dad's fault. I'm sorry. You know, I'll never forget how so many things I'll never forget. But, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would do something wrong as a kid. And I would come in, and, and, and my mother would find every reason in the world to excuse what I did. It was never my fault. It was somebody else's fault. Now, that could really lead me into a life of irresponsibility, but it sure felt good. It sure felt good. And I, and I, I just somehow sense that when we're young and when we're small, we need to understand that there, there, there's got to be a lot of time. But look, if you're in a, quote, dysfunctional family, you grow up. And look, there are such things as dysfunctional families. I don't use, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a counselor. I just know that some families don't work right. I mean, when you're having to run from an alcoholic, drunken dad, and you're afraid for your life, that ain't normal. When you're afraid, when you smell his breath, you smell her breath, and fear just up and down your back. And you're trying to make up for the father's behavior. Trying to make up for the mother's behavior. And you fly and you, you hide and you cover up. That's dysfunctional. That's not normal. God wants, but every single one of us are raised in homes and families that are just a little bit dysfunctional. And some of us really bit, a good bit dysfunctional. And so we're going to hear shame messages throughout our life. We're going to hear it. We've heard it, every one of us. I remember people close to me would say, because I was a nervous kid, I was just all over the place, just, just nervous. Rex, you're going to have ulcers before you're 14. Well, I didn't have ulcers at 14. Somehow, I think God must have really intervened because I thought in my mind, no, I don't get ulcers. I give ulcers to other people. That's kind of what I thought. And, you know, others will get ulcers, but I won't get ulcers. Well, I haven't had ulcers yet. But 
there's something about the shame of you're just not acting right. You're not behaving correctly. You're not pr- performing up to speed. It's easy to get shamed in our families of origin. No one has any more power to shame a child than a dad, in my opinion. A father's words can be devastating. I mean, they can reduce us to the place that we can't even boil water with confidence. We feel so inept. You know, can't you keep up? Can't you screw that lid on that bottle right? Can't you do anything right? You're so dumb. You know, what, you fall off a stupid tree and hit every limb on the way down? You know, we've heard it all. We've heard it all. And so we feel dumb and we feel stupid and we feel inept and we feel basically, and what is shame? Shame is different from guilt. Guilt says you just made a mistake, you just sinned. And you confess that sin and you get forgiveness. But guilt, but shame says you are a mistake. You are permanently and fatally flawed, permanently and uniquely flawed. I mean, you are a caterpillar in a world of butterflies. That's what shame says. You are a crawly, stinky caterpillar. When all the other world has let go of that cocoon and they're flying through the air as beautiful butterflies, but no, you are uniquely and permanently flawed. That's what shame does. That's why I think the gospel, and Jesus was so amazing when the gospel says this. Three times this phrase occurs in the New Testament. Romans 5, 5, Romans 10, 11, 1 Peter 2, 6. Whoever believes in him, Jesus, whoever trusts in him shall not be put to shame. There's no shame for those who have trusted Jesus Christ. Why? There couldn't be. Christ died for all our sin and shame and sorrow. He died for that. Now, shame creates this permanently negative opinion about our self-worth. And we just feel like we're uniquely and hopelessly flawed. It's what shame does. And the gospel... And the number one remedy for the gospel is regeneration, that you are brand new, recreated in Christ Jesus. You're not the same person. I love 2 Corinthians 5.17. Can you say it with me? If any man, we'll use man, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That means any human being, any person, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I mean, if you're in Christ, you have shed the cocoon. You are a butterfly. Now, you may not feel like a butterfly. You may feel like a cocoon, like a caterpillar. But you are a butterfly. Because the metamorphosis has taken place. The transformation, that's regeneration when you're born again. A shame-based identity is the opposite of a grace-based identity. The shame lie shackles us into this hopeless pessimism of a low self-worth. 
I just can't measure up. And what's more, I can't change. I'm hopelessly, permanently flawed. You can't teach this old dog new tricks because I can't change. That's the lie of hopelessness. That's the lie because that's what what Jesus does all the time. He changes us. That's what he does. He transforms our life. Have you ever heard, I'm remembering a wife who said to her husband, now I know this husband and this husband's father was an alcoholic, a drunk. He beat the kids. He beat his wife, his mother, and and, and he, he vowed in his heart, I'll never be like my dad. I'll never be like my dad. He made that vow. And one day, this man's wife said to him, you are just like your dad. And he was so angry, he turned to her and snapped and said, I am not like my dad. My dad was an alcoholic. My dad beat my mom. My dad beat me. I am not like my dad. And she looked at him and said, you are just like your dad. Now, those statements of judgment, and probably what happened is this young man decided, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to beat my wife. I'm not going to beat my children. I'm going to be a good dad. I'm going to be a good husband. But there was such resentment about his dad. There was such a spirit of unforgiveness, such a spirit of judgment against his father, that Well, we become, we tend to become like the object we despise, or we tend to become like the object we love. If we despise a person, we tend to pick up their selfish traits, their prideful traits, their it's all about me traits. Maybe we won't do the surface things like the drunkenness and the abuse and the cursing and all of that, but inside we can carry those same attitudes of self-centeredness and everything is all about me. Judgment. Always be alert to saying, I'll never be like, because that could communicate a sense of bitterness and unforgiveness. We are to forgive those people who have hurt us. We're to release them. We're to let them go. And we're to fully focus on becoming like Jesus Christ, loving him and honoring him and praising him. Quickly, I want to just give a definition of a stronghold because 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5 says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but they're mighty unto God to the pulling down of strongholds. And we cast down every imagination, every argument, and every vain reasoning that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And we bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. A stronghold is an attitude of hopelessness, whereby we accept as unchangeable something that is contrary to the word of God. Just know that God can change any one of us, and that's what he does, and that's what he wants to do. A shame-based identity is a result of focusing on past failures rather than future promises. 
Do you focus on, on God's commands or do you focus on his promises? Often, you know, I know we're to really obey the promises of God, but if we're command-focused always, we'll tend to get discouraged and we'll tend to rely on ourselves. But if we're promise-focused, we're looking at the promises of God and trusting the promises of God, we'll tend to be faith-focused. Faith and we want to obey the commands of Christ, obviously. But it's through understanding His promises Understanding what he has said to us at the cross that gives us that freedom and that power to fully obey him. We know the effects of shame, and I'm not going to go over those right now, just the way we act and the way we are. There's a verse of scripture that I want you to look at, 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1. And in that very first verse of that very first chapter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, that word hope, Christ Jesus is our hope. When Kirk texted me this morning saying, the doctors have given up all hope, pray for hope. Hope is the one thing we all need. We need hope like we need air to breathe. Hope can enable us to move on. I'll tell you who will win the election come November. Obama or Romney. I'll tell you who wins the election. It's the one who will give the most hope. That could be a lying hope. But people want hope. They want hope. And every single person needs hope like we need air to breathe. The word here for hope is elpis. It means overwhelming confidence. Now, that overwhelming confidence will give you a Christ-centered self-confidence. It will give you joy. It will make you positive. This kind of hope will thrill your soul, and it's only found in Christ. Christ is our hope. Regeneration. I want you to look at a man who was born again, Luke chapter 19. His name is Zacchaeus. You remember his story, Jesus and Zacchaeus? One day, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, this is in Luke 19, there was a man named Zacchaeus, that's a Hebrew name, he was a Jewish man, he was a chief tax collector. That means he was the head of all the tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors were despised. They were the lowlifes. These were like the pimps of their day. These were the brokers of, of tax abuse and swindle and fraud. He was very rich because he exploited people. And not only that, he was a traitor. He was disloyal to his own people because the taxes they paid went to the Roman government and a few of the Jewish leaders went over and worked for the Roman government as tax collector, thus was Zacchaeus. So he was seen as a traitor, a swindler, a lowlife that everyone despised. And that's the self-image he carried. He, he, he carried that image of self-worth that was very low. I am a despised 
no good tax collector. Now, as he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Wow, that's pretty huge for Zacchaeus. Despised tax collector that he was, made wealthy because he was a swindler, and he cheated and exploited his fellow man, especially the Jewish people. And now Jesus is wanting to come to stay in his house today. And staying in your house and eating at your table is the number one form of intimate relationship there. That's, you sit at the same table, you're close friends, you're intimates. So he hurried and came down. I love Zacchaeus. He responded enthusiastically. He hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, Zacchaeus received Christ joyfully. And that's the first step, to receive him and what he has done. For shame to be put away, we receive Christ and the work that he did on the cross for us. He received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Nobody liked it. Everybody was upset with Jesus. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, notorious one at that. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, after he received Jesus joyfully into his home, and he knew he'd been accepted by Christ right there on the spot, he stood up in front of everyone and said, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it fourfold. Which is actually what the law said you're to do if you steal a sheep or an ox. Zacchaeus is a new man. A brand new man. In the previous chapter, Luke 18, the rich young ruler refused to part with his goods, refused to part with his money. His God was money. He was greedy. But Zacchaeus, half of everything I have, I give to the poor. And he said that publicly. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And believe me, there's going to be a line right up to Zacchaeus' house of people have been defrauded by him. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. And that means he's a son of Abraham, and he was physically a Jew, but he was a son of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ, just like us. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When we're born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, we see the kingdom of heaven. You're not a retread. You're a brand new man. You're a brand new woman. You're not just a little bit of spiritual clay added to a sinful lump. You're a whole spiritual lump. 
You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You're no longer called a sinner. You're called a saint. You're a saint who sins, yes. Who needs to repent and turn from that sin, yes. But you're not a sinner. In Christ, you're a saint. And that's what you're called because that's who you are. You're separate unto God. You're unique, wondrous, and wonderful to Him. Born again. Titus, regeneration, being born again, washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's not a self-reformation program. It's, It's not a sin management program. It's not turning over a new leaf. It's not... Uh, making up my mind to do better. It's not resolving more and more to be a better guy, to be a better girl. It's a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. You need the power of God to regenerate, to renew your life by the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens when you put faith in Jesus Christ. You are a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, yes, you'll struggle with those sins. Yes, you'll struggle with those past habits. Yes, you will struggle with all the shame that's been dumped out and poured out on you throughout your life. You need to get your mind renewed, and that's what these lessons are about, to get the mind restored. First of all, losers live in the past and get stuck in it. Winners let go of the past and learn from it. We must, first of all, let go of the past. There's past failure. And every single one of us, all of us have failed. We've all sinned. We let go of that past failure. We let go of that old shame-based identity. We've got to let go. And then Ephesians tells us to put off and then start putting off the old self, the old man, literally. And all the deeds of that old man, the lust, we put it off. Uh, We strip off, just like we take our clothes off. We take the greed off. We take this performance-based acceptance. I've got to be a good performer. We take that shirt off. And we have to take off the clothing of being an approval addict. I've got to do this to get your approval. And I I try to, I, I, I put off all the judgment and all the anger and all the bitterness and how I want people punished, and I want revenge, and I even fear punishment myself. We put all of that off. We put off the blame game. We put off being an approval addict. We put off being a performer. We put all of that off. And then the Bible says, just like clothing, we put on the new man. We put on this new self that's recreated in Christ Jesus unto all holiness and righteousness. We're a brand new person. And so every day we have to take off and put on, take off and put on. Yes. And when the enemy tries to bring that old baggage back and all those old clothing back, we take it off. So three words I want to leave you with. Let go of that past, the past failure, and that past shame-based identity, especially the past failure. Let it go, then put off the old deeds, and put on the new man in Christ. The Flying Rodellas, Henry Nowen was friends of theirs, and he talked about, it's a trapeze artist family, 
And he talked to them and got to know them very well. And there's the flyer and the catcher. And Henry Nowen says, as he interviewed this family, he discovered that there was this incredible relationship and connection between the flyer and the catcher. That the number one thing the flyer had to do was let go of that bar and trust the catcher. Not try to grab the catcher, but just let go of the bar and trust the catcher. And that relationship of trust was very, very important. What I would like to say to you today and to me is let's go of that, let go of that bar of past failure because we've all failed, every single one of us, and we let it go and we take a new bar or we take the new hands of Christ and that new identity that he has and the hands of our catcher is strong. I close out letters and notes and articles that I write in his grip of grace, Rex, in his grip of grace. And we're held by the strong hands and arms of our catcher, the eternal God. Let go of past failure. Let go of that shame-based identity and trust Christ to give you that new identity and let the truth set you free. That new identity. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. As we close this series, I want to ask you. Do you know and know that you know that you've trusted Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Are you aware that you are a brand new creation in Christ Jesus? Do you know for certain that old things have passed away and all things have become new? And that beating in your heart is a butterfly, not a caterpillar. You know there's an eagle inside you that's longing to soar. You know that because you've trusted Christ and you believe the gospel. If you don't know that for sure, Would you just pray with me? Think about this cross and the Father's love for you and pray with me and just drive a stake down today. Nail it down. July 29th, 2012. Pray with me. If this prayer expresses your heart, if not, pray something else, but just cry out, call out to the Lord and drive that stake down today. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for loving me. You just go ahead and pray in your heart and really mean it. I believe you died for my sins. I believe that you died for me. And you declared me not guilty fully forgiven. I believe and trust in your blood that you did that for me. And I believe that you have restored the relationship with you, Father.
and I trust you, and I accept you, and I receive you into my life today. And I thank you, Father, for loving me so much that you would give your son to die on a cross for me and pay the penalty for my sins. Today, Lord Jesus, I call on your name. Save me, Jesus. Save me now. I trust you. Make me the person you want me to be. I want to follow you as the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.